My name is George Bennett and I serve here as an elder and a small group leader. I have the privilege today of delivering the next installment in our summer sermon series called A New Look at the Old Testament. Pastor Tony gave you an introduction to the series last week, but in case you missed it or you need a refresher, our goal with this series is to take a deep look at some Old Testament passages through New Testament lenses. Our passage today will start in Genesis 22. While you are turning there, allow me to reminisce a little bit. My daughter, Victoria, just finished her first year of high school and has started reading some of the same books I read in school. And it's gotten me thinking back on my own experience in literature classes. I remember when I was in middle school and junior high, the teachers would ask us to identify the hero of the story. When I got to high school, they started asking us to identify the protagonist. At the time, I thought protagonist was just a fancier word, but over the years, I have come to appreciate that the change in terminology was intentional. A hero and a protagonist are both stars of the story, but they are not the same. A protagonist is the first or most prominent character, but isn't necessarily heroic. A hero, on the other hand, is a role model or an example worth imitating. We look up to heroes and we want to be like them. At various points in my life, I've wanted to be the Lone Ranger, Superman, Luke Skywalker, Magic Johnson, Ronald Reagan, my father, and Captain America, <laughs> in that order. My message today is entitled, A Cast of Heroes. As we look at Genesis, I want to identify who the heroes are and what makes them heroic. God is, of course, the ultimate hero and ultimate protagonist of every passage of the Bible, but my focus will be on the human characters. As I mentioned earlier, we will be in the book of Genesis today. Genesis was written by Moses sometime after the exodus from Egypt, and before the Israelites entered the promised land. His purpose was to teach the Israelites who God is and who the Israelites were. If I were to ask you the first two names you think of when you hear Genesis, you might answer with the two we studied last week, Adam and Eve. But if you consider all 50 chapters of the book, the two most prominent figures are Abraham and his grandson, Jacob. The generational bridge between them was Isaac. To the extent Isaac is mentioned in Genesis, it is mostly peripheral to Abraham or to Jacob. I want to focus on the section where the lives of Abraham and Isaac overlap. Genesis 21 starts with Isaac's birth. Abraham's death is recounted in chapter 25. In between are the 75 years Abraham and Isaac shared on earth together some 4,000 years ago. I want you to think of chapters 20 through, 21 through 25 as a five-act play. Act one, scene one, is the birth of Isaac. The final scene of act five is the burial of Abraham. Abraham is clearly the star of this play. If a movie, Abraham would be played by Tom Hanks or Morgan Freeman. <laughs> he is definitely the protagonist and he is a hero, but he is not the only hero. 
I plan to identify four heroes and what makes them heroic. We will pick up the play at Act 2, Scene 1, which begins in Chapter 22, Verse 1. Before we do that, let's pray. Almighty Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that your word never ceases to teach, and thank you that your word never returns empty or falls to the ground. Please open your word to us this morning so that we might learn what you want us to learn and apply what you want us to apply. Use your word to transform us and renew our minds. May we leave today more like you than when we came. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Okay, follow along with me as I read Genesis 22. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. Let's stop there for a moment. If the story ended right here, we would probably think God is a cruel monster. Child sacrifice? Isn't that the kind of thing that the pagan gods of the Canaanites did? Isn't the God of Israel different? He is different and the story doesn't end here. One important thing to note is that God tested Abraham. He tested Abraham because Abraham was called to become the father of many nations. Abraham's calling was unique, so his test was unique as well. Also, God tested Abraham. He was not instituting a policy of child sacrifice for all his followers. God commanded Abraham to take Isaac to the land of Moriah. This is the final recorded command God gave to Abraham. Do you remember the first command God gave to Abraham? Back in chapter 12 of Genesis, God commanded Abraham to leave his country and his family and go to a land that God would show him. Notice the parallels here. God uses the same word go to get Abraham to venture toward a vague destination that would be specified later. Their traditional interpretation is that this instruction refers to Mount Moriah where the temple in Jerusalem was later constructed. There is some disagreement among interpreters as to whether it really refers to Mount Moriah, but we'll stick with that understanding. However, I want you to notice that the text says, on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. Abraham didn't necessarily go to Mount Moriah itself. God might have used Mount Moriah as the reference point because it was the most prominent peak in the area but might have directed Abraham to a different mountain nearby. I like to think God directed Abraham to a hill about a half a mile away from Mount Moriah outside Jerusalem, a hill that resembled a skull, a hill named Golgotha, but that's just speculation. So this is the climax of Abraham's life, his final test. Would he obey or refuse? Would he love his earthly child more than his heavenly father? Would he love the blessing more than the blesser? Let's continue reading from verse 3. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. 
And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on his son, Isaac. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they went, both of them, together. And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, my father. And he said, here I am, my son. He said, behold, the fire and the wood. But where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them, together. So Abraham obeyed immediately. He didn't try to bargain or negotiate. He rose early in the morning. I'm guessing he probably didn't sleep much that night. The text says the trip took three days. So Abraham had plenty of time to think about turning back, but he pressed on. Verse 9. When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. You will notice in your sermon notes that each of the points in my outline has a blank followed by parentheses. As we go through the outline, we will fill in the blanks, but for now we will leave the parentheses empty. With that said, write this down as your first point. Abraham offered a heroic sacrifice. Abraham offered a heroic sacrifice. At first glance, it might not seem that heroic. He put his own child on the altar after all. Again, if the story stopped after verse 10, we might think God is sadistic and Abraham is a sociopath. However, if we continue reading, we can see why the sacrifice was heroic. Verse 11, but the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked and behold, Behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. Abraham passed his test. Abraham's sacrifice was heroic because he obeyed without hesitation. Abraham's sacrifice was heroic because he didn't withhold anything from God. And Abraham's sacrifice was heroic because he had faith that God would provide. But there's an even more fundamental reason Abraham's sacrifice was heroic. Whom did he really sacrifice? He sacrificed himself. Alan Ross in his commentary on Genesis puts it this way. You can read it on the screen. Although the commandment was to sacrifice Isaac as an offering to the Lord, the real point of the act was Abraham's sacrifice of himself, 
that is, of his will and his wisdom with regard to his son Isaac. When the angel of the Lord stopped Abraham's sacrifice and pointed out the ram caught in the thicket, he signified that Abraham's sacrifice was acceptable. In truth, Abraham had made the sacrifice. It's noteworthy that the animal caught in the thicket was identified as a ram. In the Bible, the ram was often used as the symbol for a ruler, and the ram's horn signified the ruler's pride or lofty ambition. According to the symbolism, then, this episode is a subtle reminder that a ruler can get trapped by his pride, and the way to escape that trap is to be dedicated to God. For me, as a leader in the church, it's a reminder that the greatest threat to the church comes from inside, not outside. My sin nature can do more damage to the church than any government policy or persecution. Let's go back and read verse 8 again. Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. I used to read this verse as if it were wishful thinking on Abraham's part, or even a well-intentioned lie so as to not frighten Isaac. But the longer I spend with the Bible and walk with God, the more I think that Abraham said these words confidently. I think Abraham thought that God had already provided the lamb. I think Abraham thought Isaac was the lamb. The writer of Hebrews certainly thought Abraham was confident. Hebrews 11:19 tells us, Abraham considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. Another reason I think Abraham was confident comes from my own personal experience. Many of you have heard this story before, and I apologize if you're growing tired of hearing it, but I believe it's pertinent to this passage. In 1995, I went on a short-term mission trip to Istanbul in Turkey. After I returned, I knew I wanted to be involved in reaching Turkish people for Christ, and I prayed for a Turkish wife. At the time, the prayer didn't seem so crazy. I was in graduate school at a large university with a small population of Turkish students. I was living in a city with a population of a million people, seven colleges and universities, four major hospitals, and other multinational businesses. The chances of meeting a Turkish woman didn't seem too bad. Two years later, I graduated and moved to Decatur. Last winter, there was a week when both the Mega Millions and Powerball jackpots were close to a billion dollars. I remember reading an article about the Powerball that said a person has a better chance of being allergic to water than of winning the jackpot. <laughs> I think the chances of my finding a Turkish wife were probably better than being allergic to water, but they were significantly lower than when I lived in Columbus. Meeting a Turkish woman who was both unmarried and a Christian and who was living in central Illinois was a lawn shot. <laughs> I had asked God for a needle in a haystack. God answered by giving me the farmer's daughter. Not one day has gone by since I met Daria in 2010. when I haven't remembered that God answered my self-centered prayer. 
I tell this story with a fair degree of frequency, not to emphasize that I prayed, but to emphasize God was faithful and gracious. I have to believe that every time Abraham looked at Isaac, he was reminded of God's faithfulness. And I also have to believe that Abraham probably told Isaac that he was the child God had promised. I imagine that Abraham was certain that God was going to keep his covenant. I suspect that Abraham really was confident that God would bring Isaac back to life. I suspect that Abraham was confident that Isaac would come back down the mountain with him. Abraham could be confident about the outcome because his faith was in God himself. The difference between Abraham and me is that all too often I put my faith in the outcome rather than the one who is orchestrating the outcome. As I mentioned before, Abraham is not the only hero in this passage. Isaac is a hero too. You may write this down as your second point. Isaac exercised heroic trust. Isaac exercised heroic trust. One of the aspects of this passage that intrigues me is how much is left unsaid. For example, how old was Isaac when all of this took place? Moses didn't tell us Isaac's specific age, but he did leave some clues. In science, we often talk about boundary conditions, which are the upper and lower limits of a measurement or an experimental result. For example, when I have my students perform a chemical reaction, the maximum amount of product that can form is limited by how much reactant the student uses. So we have a boundary condition that gives us an idea of how much product to expect. Moses gave us boundary conditions for Isaac's age. Act one, scene two in chapter 21 is a feast celebrating Isaac's weaning. Children were typically weaned at the age of two or three, so we know Isaac was at least that old. Furthermore, Act 3, Scene 1 in Chapter 23 is the death of Sarah at the age of 127, which would make Isaac no older than 37. We know from the passage that Isaac was old enough to be able to carry the wood, and he was old enough to understand that the sacrifice required a lamb. The word translated boy in Chapter 22, Verse 5 is another clue, but not in the way you might expect. The Hebrew word means inexperienced one, sort of like our English word novice. The same word is used in chapter 21 to refer to Ishmael. The occasion was after the feast celebrating Isaac's weaning when Sarah saw Ishmael laughing and told Abraham to send Hagar and Ishmael away. Ishmael was 14 years older than Isaac, so if Isaac was two or three at the time, Ishmael was 16 or 17. I believe the parallel use of the same word was a clue in Hebrew that Isaac was 16 or 17 when he went up the mountain with Abraham. To put it another way, the English word boy conjures up images of a child who would be in a Harvest Kids classroom on Sunday morning, but we should really be picturing a young man and Harvest students on Wednesday evening. My point in trying to estimate Isaac's age is to show that he was likely physically mature enough to have gotten, away from, gotten off the altar and away from Abraham if he had wanted to. 
Remember, Abraham was 100 years older than Isaac. Even if the aging process was slower in Abraham's day and he had the strength of, say, a modern 50-year-old, he would have had a hard time holding Isaac against his will. Yet there is no mention of any struggle. Now, absence of evidence is not evidence of absence. But Moses certainly portrayed Isaac as a willing participant. To be a willing participant, Isaac must have had a tremendous amount of trust in Abraham and in God. I only know of two people in the Bible who willingly went to the altar, so to speak. Both were sons born under miraculous circumstances, and both carried the wood they would be sacrificed on, and both lived to tell about it. Back when Pastor Tony was preaching from the book of Romans, he frequently drew our attention to Romans 12, 1 through 2. Romans 12, 1 starts, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Isaac actually offered his body as a living sacrifice, and I wouldn't be the least surprised if Paul was making a veiled reference to him when he wrote that verse. So Isaac exercised heroic trust. Let's finish reading the passage, verse 15. And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, by myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, because you have obeyed my voice. So Abraham returned to his young men, and they arose and went together to Beersheba. And Abraham lived at Beersheba. Wait a minute, where is Isaac? Did he not come down the mountain too? Some commentators infer that Isaac stayed on the mountain to pray or to receive instruction from God about his role in the covenant. Others infer that Isaac became estranged from Abraham and went a different direction. That kind of makes sense to us. It's hard to imagine that their relationship would ever be the same. But here again is where Isaac's age matters. If Isaac was 16 or 17, going off to live on his own would have been extremely challenging. Also consider that Abraham had to send Ishmael away when he was 16 or 17. Ishmael was the child who resulted from human wisdom and human effort, born according to the flesh, as Paul put it in Galatians. Isaac was the child of the promise, born according to the spirit. Wouldn't it be a tragic irony if Abraham lost Isaac as well? Let me also remind you what I said earlier, absence of evidence is not automatically evidence of absence. Just because Isaac isn't mentioned doesn't mean he wasn't there. I think Isaac probably was with Abraham, but Moses left out Isaac's name in order to keep the spotlight on Abraham. I also think the Holy Spirit inspired Moses to leave his name out of verse 19 for a reason that will become apparent as I go through my remaining points. At this stage, we're going to turn our attention to Act 4, Scene 1 of our five-act play. So let's turn to Chapter 24, Verse 1. Now Abraham was old, well advanced in years, and the Lord had blessed Abraham in all things. 
And Abraham said to his servant, the oldest of his household, who had charge of all that he had, put your hand under my thigh that I may make you swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and God of the earth, that you will not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites among whom I dwell, but will go to my country and to my kindred and take a wife for my son, Isaac. Genesis 15:2 tells us that Abraham's servant was named Eliezer. So write this down as your third point. Eliezer bore fruit through heroic service. Eliezer bore fruit through heroic service. Let's continue reading from verse 10. Then the servant took 10 of his master's camels and departed, taking all sorts of choice gifts from his master. And he arose and went to Mesopotamia to the city of Nahor. And he made the camels kneel down outside the city by the well of water at the time of evening, the time when women go out to draw water. And he said, O Lord, God of my master Abraham, please grant me success today and show steadfast love to my master Abraham. Behold, I am standing by the spring of water and the daughters of the men of the city are coming out to draw water. Let the young woman to whom I shall say, please let down your jar that I may drink and who shall say, drink and I will water your camels. Let her be the one whom you have appointed for your servant, Isaac. By this, I shall know that you have shown steadfast love to my master. Before he had finished speaking, behold, Rebekah, who was born to Bethuel, the son of Milcah, the wife of Nahor, Abraham's brother, came out with her water jar on her shoulder. The young woman was very attractive in appearance, a maiden whom no man had known. She went down to the spring and filled her jar and came up. Then the servant ran to meet her and said, please give me a little water to drink from your jar. She said, drink my Lord. And she quickly let down her jar upon her hand and gave him a drink. When she had finished giving him a drink, she said, I will draw water for your camels also until they have finished drinking. Eliezer is the third hero of this play because he did the work Abraham wanted and needed him to do in the way Abraham wanted him to do it. Eliezer went to the place Abraham sent him and left the results up to God. After Eliezer's prayer was answered, he gave Rebecca gifts and she told her family what happened. Her family invited Eliezer to stay with them and he told them what his mission was. On behalf of Isaac, Eliezer asked Rebecca's father and brother for her hand in marriage. Verse 51 records their response. Behold, Rebekah is before you. Take her and go and let her be the wife of your master's son as the Lord has spoken. Eliezer's service bore fruit. He found a woman to become Isaac's wife. Continuing from verse 54. And he and the men who were with him ate and drank and they spent the night there. When they arose in the morning, he said, send me away to my master. Her brother and her mother said, let the young woman remain with us a while, at least 10 days. After that, she may go. But he said to them, do not delay me since the Lord has prospered my way. Send me away that I may go to my master. They said, let us call the young woman and ask her. 
And they called Rebecca and said to her, will you go with this man? She said, I will go. This was really underhanded on the part of Rebecca's family. After approving the marriage, they started backtracking and trying to get Eliezer to stay longer. Then they put Rebecca in the position of deciding. Her mother and brother were not very honorable. However, Rebecca demonstrated heroic commitment. She's the fourth hero of this play, and that's the fourth point of your outline. Rebecca demonstrated heroic commitment. She left with a man she had just met to go marry a man she hadn't met yet. Jump down to verse 62. Now Isaac had returned from Be'er Lahai Roy and was dwelling in the Negeb. And Isaac went out to meditate in the field toward evening. And he lifted up his eyes and saw, and behold, there were camels coming. And Rebekah lifted up her eyes, and when she saw Isaac, she dismounted from the camel and said to the servant, Who is that man walking in the field to meet us? The servant said, It is my master. So she took her veil and covered herself, and the servant told Isaac all the things that he had done. Then Isaac brought her into the tent of Sarah, his mother, and took Rebekah, and she became his wife, and he loved her. So Isaac was comforted after his mother's death. This was no small journey for Eliezer and Rebekah. The round trip would have been about 1,200 miles. In effect, Rebekah was making the same trek that Abraham had made so many years before. Here we see Isaac for the first time since he was bound on the altar. We know from a later passage in Genesis that Isaac was 40 years old, so the consummation of the marriage was three years after Sarah's death. As far as we know, Rebekah was the only wife Isaac ever had, which makes him one of the few male ancestors of Jesus to be monogamous. He was a one-woman man. Let's go back now through the four points and fill in the parentheses. In the blanks, we put personal names. In the parentheses, we will put common nouns. So for point one, after Abraham, in the parentheses, write the father. You can probably then guess for point two, after Isaac, write the son. For point number three, it helps to know something about Eliezer. He was a servant, and his name comes from the root word for God of help and loosely means comforter. So in the parentheses for point three, write either the helper or the comforter. Finally, for point four in the parentheses, write the bride. Now the outline reads, the father offered a heroic sacrifice. The son exercised heroic trust. The helper bore fruit through heroic service. The bride demonstrated heroic commitment. So what we have here embedded in our five-act play is a father who brought his beloved one and only son, whose miraculous birth occurred as it was foretold, to a mountain near Jerusalem and placed him upon the very wood that he had carried. The son rose from that sacrificial altar and returned to his father but remained out of sight until the helper could prepare the one and only bride for him.
Are you familiar with Easter eggs? I don't mean the ones you dip in vinegar and different colored dyes. The term Easter egg is also used to refer to a message or a feature hidden in a movie or a video game. In a movie, an Easter egg might tie into a future movie. This five-act play we're studying is an Easter egg that gives us a glimpse at all of redemptive history. Abraham, of course, would not have been able to tell what was going on since these events were spread out over the course of years. Moses would not have known either unless God had specifically told him so. The Israelites hearing Aaron read Moses' words would not have been able to discern it either. What would the Israelites have discerned? Remember, Moses' purpose in writing Genesis was to teach the Israelites about God and about themselves. The chief lesson for the Israelites would have been theological. When the Israelites heard these stories, I think their main takeaway would have come from chapter 22, verse 14. When Abraham named the place, the Lord will provide. In the ESV, the word Lord is in all capitals, signifying the personal name Yahweh or Jehovah. This name is Jehovah Jireh, God my provider. In his devotional book, 100 Names of God, Christopher Hudson writes, Abraham learned that God doesn't just call his people to action and then disappear. On the contrary, he shows up in the nick of time and su supplies precisely what we need. The very thing God demands, he also provides. Now it's time to get applicational. I'm going to ask you some of the same questions I've been asking myself since I started preparing this sermon. My questions will follow the main points of my outline. With respect to sacrifice, I don't consider myself much of a role model. That's not to say I haven't sacrificed anything for the kingdom. When I thought about what I have already sacrificed, the very first thing that came to my mind was prospects for professional advancement in my career. But then as I thought about it, I wondered if that was really a sacrifice. I mean, I've taken myself out of contention for certain advances, but I wasn't guaranteed of achieving any of them. I haven't given up something that was already mine. I've given up the possibility of getting those things, but there wasn't any personal loss involved. As other sacrifices of mine came to mind, I realized most of them didn't involve any personal loss either. They were less about sacrifices and more about reordering my priorities. You can tell a lot about your priorities by studying your checking account and credit card statements, or by listening to what words you say next when you begin a sentence with, I want. So the application question I'm asking myself and would urge you to ask yourself is, are any of my priorities misplaced? With respect to trust, I would be remiss if I didn't ask you if you have trusted Jesus Christ for your salvation. Have you agreed with God that your sinfulness made you guilty before him? Have you trusted that Jesus Christ's death was sufficient to pay the penalty for all your sins? And have you trusted that Jesus Christ's resurrection makes it possible for you to have eternal life in heaven when you die? 
As Romans 10.9 says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. If you are listening right now and haven't yet taken that step of trusting him, I urge you to make today the day you do it. I will be available after the service if you want to talk to me about how to take that step. And if you decided to trust Jesus Christ today for the first time, I encourage you to tell someone. There are a lot of application questions I could ask myself about trust or faith, but the one that keeps coming back to me over and over again is, do I trust that God is working in me and in the believers around me? It isn't always apparent that he is. I'm sure it's not always apparent to the believers around me that God is working in me either. One reason it's not always apparent is that God sometimes takes us on what we could call the scenic route to get to the destination. He sometimes chooses pathways for us that we would never choose on our own. I think a big reason why he does that is so we aren't tempted to take the credit. He brings about the desired outcome by using a process that leaves no doubt that God did the work. Philippians 1.6 says, And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. If I believe that promise applies to me, I have to believe it applies to every brother and sister in Christ too. Do I trust that God is working in me? Do I trust that God is working in the believers around me? There are two questions I've been asking myself with respect to bearing fruit through service. One is, am I bearing fruit in keeping with my spiritual gifts? The other is, am I bearing more fruit than I used to? I try to ask myself these questions on a fairly regular basis. God gives us spiritual gifts for the purpose of building up the church. The expectation in the New Testament is that we will use those gifts. Another expectation in the New Testament is that we will grow in fruitfulness over time. If my answer to either question is no, something needs to change. All my sermon points ended in periods. Even when we put the common nouns in the parentheses, they remained declarative statements as long as we were talking about Genesis 22 and 24. However, if we consider them in relation to redemptive history, the first three points still end in periods, but the fourth point should really end with a question mark. The bride demonstrated heroic commitment. The bride of Christ is still being gathered together. It isn't past tense yet. So the question I'm asking myself is, am I committed to the same things Jesus is committed to? Finally, remember the key takeaway for the Israelites? The related application question is more or less a rewording of the takeaway. Do I believe God will provide what I need when I need it? I want to believe that. If I really did, though, I would never lie, I would never worry, and I would never complain. I do lie, I do worry, and I do complain. So I have room to grow. How about you? Do you believe God will provide what you need when you need it?
Asking yourself the questions is not enough, of course. If your answers reveal that any changes are necessary, I encourage you to let your small group know so they can pray for you and provide accountability. If you aren't in a small group, then enlist the help of someone you trust. If your answers to these questions reveal that you need to grow in faith, I want to encourage you with some words from the Apostle Paul. Write in about Abraham's response when God promised him a son in his old age. Paul said in Romans 4.20, No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God. Growing strong in his faith was the effect. Giving glory to God was the cause. If you want to grow strong in your faith, give glory to God. Praise him and thank him often. I will close with this. Uh, Worship team, you can go ahead and come forward. The heroes we encounter in books and movies are usually the characters who refuse to submit, but rather who stand their ground. Heroes in the Bible, however, don't stand their ground. They kneel their ground. They surrender themselves to God and trust him to provide whatever is needed. Abraham, Isaac, Eliezer, and Rebekah were able to do heroic things because they had already put God's will ahead of their own. They adopted heroic attitudes of submission before they performed heroic actions. I can't think of a better way for us to express that same attitude of submission than to pray the Lord's Prayer. We don't often do this here at Harvest, so if you don't know it, feel free to turn to Matthew chapter 6, verse 9, and follow along as I lead us. If you want to say it out loud with me, that's fine. If you prefer to say it in the quietness of your own heart and mind, that's fine too. Regardless of how you recite it or what version you recite, make it your prayer today as I make it my prayer today. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen.